It may interest you to know that I, Bob Schmidt, host of the Fear the Fro podcast, am one of three children. I'm the youngest. Youngest children stand up. Now, as is the case with many youngest siblings, their older siblings are the flawed, shittier versions of themselves. My parents kept going until they got a good child, a complete product, if you will, that being me, and then they stopped. They shut it down. But before I came into this world, my older siblings preceded me, and they brought with them uh, a litany of imperfections, one of which was that they both proved to be allergic to bee stings. A bumblebee, a wasp, a hornet, all of them could render my older siblings even more useless than they already are. Now, I did not suffer from the same malady. But in the case of my older brother and sister, it didn't matter what the activity was. We could be playing soccer. We could be outside running around. My brother could be shooting me with the BB gun while I screamed bloody murder and my neighbors called my parents and said, hey, your oldest asshole son is tormenting your young, sweet, perfect third child. Point is, if a bee were to become agitated, and sting either one of my siblings, it became a life or death situation. Because without an EpiPen, they would find themselves in the middle of an allergic reaction. And during an allergic reaction, you can develop anaphylaxis, which causes your airways to swell and close. And if you can't get air through your airwaves, you can't breathe and you die. So a hornet at any moment could take away the first version and the second version of the Schmidt spawn. So in order to prevent a bee from doing the most damage possible after a bee sting, you needed a device called an EpiPen. The crazy part about an EpiPen is the EpiPen is not the medicine and the device. It's really mostly just the device that you're buying because an EpiPen administers the medicine known as epinephrine, which is incredibly cheap. It's been around forever. It costs about a dollar a dose to administer, and what it does is it immediately opens your airwaves. <sighs> Crisis averted, child lives, parents are reminded of their early failures, well, for the rest of their life, probably. But the thing with the EpiPen, the device itself that is used to inject the drug, is patent protected, and that device is what the pharmaceutical company Mylan used to price gouge the hell out of the market to the point where two doses of epinephrine, two EpiPens, a two-pack, cost on average of $600 five years ago. $600 to administer $2 worth of medicine. Perhaps the most extreme example of price gouging that I can recall in the pharmaceutical space. Now, I'm sure there are others, but EpiPens are prolific. So this is a story that I think many of us heard. Now, since then, various bills have gone through Congress and different state Congresses to try to limit this behavior by the pharmaceutical company. But the point is this. At some point, somebody was shelling out $600 for two doses of a drug worth $2. Here's the thing, though. You do purchase peace of mind. For $300, you can know that if you birth two children stupid enough to continually put themselves in harm's way and hang out around beehives, that they will not die. For $1,200, you get that peace of mind four times. Now, sure, I personally, as the younger, cooler, better, all-around brother, might argue you're chasing bad money with worse money. Just let them die. 
natural selection. But consider this. Let's say you realized that the first two kids are going to be fucking terrible. So you just didn't have children at all. You said, you know what? I'm going to be a dilf. No, no, not a dilf. A, what is the word? Dual income, no. A dink. Clearly, I spend a bit too much time on websites I should not be spending time on. But you know what? Don't judge me, okay? A dink. Dual income, no kids. You move to Charlotte and you decide, hey, with all this expendable income, I'm going to go see the Charlotte Hornets. You could spend $1,200 a seat on courtside tickets to watch a hornet who can't kill anything except for a boner. Which would you rather do? Would you rather spend $1,200 to watch the game that the Charlotte Hornets fans were subjected to tonight? Or would you throw $1,200 down the toilet to save my god-awful siblings' lives four times? Four incredible mistakes strung back to back. Which is worse? I ask you that. Now, if I told you, here's a third option. If I said that you could spend $1,200 to buy the medicine, then withhold it as you watched my brother and sister beg for their lives and then inevitably die, sure, that seems like a much better viewing experience. But that wasn't really on the table. That's just a fantasy I had in the middle of the cold open. The point is this. Consumers who spend hundreds of dollars on a product should get a return worth more than a dollar or two. Do you think that argument could be made for tonight's Cavalier Hornets game? Oubre started five for five. I guess that's your dollar or two worth of entertainment. But from there, holy shit. The rest of that ticket price might as well have been lit on fire directly in front of you. Now, sure, as a Cavalier fan, I soaked this all in. I let it pour over me like I was an R. Kelly fangirl and it was his urine. But for anybody else, citizens of Charlotte who witnessed what was out there on the floor tonight, they saw Karis Levert and Jetty Osman combined for 46 points, two players who are regularly maligned by our own Cavalier fan base. They saw Evan Mobley met with virtually no resistance, 26 points without a turnover on 10 for 15 from the floor. He even made all of his free throws, something that has not happened in recent memory. We saw this all without Donovan Mitchell, with Darius Garland playing less than 28 minutes tonight. 31 consecutive points off of turnovers to none for the Hornets. We even saw Dylan Windler, the human victory cigar, out there on the court, scoring for the first time and appearing for the first time this season. And when the other Mobley hits the floor, something went horribly, horribly wrong. Now, some of you, we're six and a half minutes in. I'm sure there's a few of you saying, what the fuck is this guy even on about? How does the bee sting thing even relate to the Cavs and Hornets? Well, one, (laughs) I tied the two together. Bees. Duh. And the second is both witnessing the Hornets tonight, if you were a Hornets fan who paid for tickets, and paying $300 a dose to save my shitty brother and my shitty sister are both gigantic wastes of money. It's a brilliant premise. And if you're not on board, I don't know what to tell you. You can't be helped either. You might as well be my fourth sibling. On to the show. Welcome to Fear the Fro, a podcast covering the Cleveland Cavaliers and the NBA with the voice of Fox Sports Radio. Figure out a way to stop it. Listen and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. Here it is, my favorite show. And now, your host. His name is Bob Schmidt. Yeah! Bob Schmidt. Yeah! 
Welcome to the Fear the Fro podcast on this. Now, I know we got a back-to-back coming up. A lot of people would say, sit on it, Bob. There's a huge game. There's a way more important, way more competitive game on the horizon, and that is true. But you cannot let a game like this pass unacknowledged. So we need to talk about this Cleveland Cavaliers resounding victory in which we got a complete team effort. Donovan Mitchell out of the lineup tonight. Jared Allen out of the lineup tonight. But there is no shortage of things to celebrate. And let's rip off four of them right off the bat. Evan Mobley, Karis LeVert, Jetty Osman, and Darius Garland. What a brilliant showing from all of those guys and a pretty damn good showing from Lamar Stevens and Ricky Rubio as well. Now, here's the thing about tonight. I thought that I didn't think that we would lose the game, but I certainly did not think it would be the runaway victory that it was tonight. We didn't have Mitchell. We still had no Allen, and they were bringing back Kelly Oubre. So they had a little bit more talent out there on the floor than they did in our matchup. But what we saw tonight was a display of dominance by the Cleveland Cavaliers, pretty much right from the jump. In the first quarter, yes, it's, it appeared to be close. The Cavaliers exited the first up by only three, but that was being propped up by what was a fantastic quarter from Kelly Oubre, who was back in the rotation after missing the first game in this two-game set with the Hornets. And as I said on the previous podcast, Kelly Oubre, for all his warts, is a man possessed in March, and he kept that going tonight. Now he's played seven games this month, averaging 25 points, seven rebounds, shooting 47-40 splits, and a 62% true shooting percentage. So they lost, but Kelly Oubre, he looks solid, and he always looks solid. He's just so goddamn beautiful. Now, to the Cavaliers. The first half of Cavalier basketball saw something which we rarely see, and I alluded to this last game. In the entire first half, the Cavs had just one turnover. It came in the first quarter, and it was the hands of Darius Garland who committed that turnover. The second quarter was flawless. Now, that also happened last game in the fourth quarter. And I didn't mention this on the pod. I did bring up the fact that they didn't have any turnovers in the fourth. But just to put in context how rare that is, it has only happened 11 times the entire season. We are 71 games into this thing. So we're talking about 284 quarters of basketball. And the Cavaliers have only done this 11 times. And by the way, Three of those have come against these Hornets, two in the last two games, and two of those 11 were the fourth quarter and overtime against the Bulls in Donovan Mitchell's 71-point win. It is rare. It is hard to do. It's like tabulating how many quarters you've played on the fly by looking at the standing sheet in the middle of a podcast. Do you think my older siblings could do that? I don't. I don't even know if they can read. So we don't turn the ball over, and they do turn the ball over. And the Cavaliers end up converting lots of points off those turnovers. Now, through the first three, almost three full quarters, three and a half, the Cavaliers scored 31 unanswered points off of turnovers before finally Kelly Oubre broke that streak. And when the game ended, the Cavaliers had scored 35 points to six off of turnovers. Now, some credit needs to go to the man who was ball hawking everything out there tonight. And that was Karis LeVert. I can remember coming into this season, being the fragile uh, Cavs defender that I am, arguing with various assholes on Twitter about how Karis LeVert can't defend. Now, I didn't really rush to stand up for Karis, but I remember thinking, these fucking embellishers, they're exaggerating. 
And what we've got to see this season is that Karis LeVert has dialed in on that end of the court. And tonight, between his prowess with the three ball, knocking down his first three three pointers, and all those steals that he got, including a couple to begin the second half that just allowed the Cavs to keep pouring it on and get to garbage time early, get rest for our boys before this big Philadelphia 76ers matchup. At the end of the night, Karis LeVert paced the way in plus minus, a plus 25 leading all the Cavaliers and a very stat-stuffing line of 22 points, four boards, seven assists tied for the team lead with Darius Garland, four steals, definitely the team leader, and even a block and a very efficient 62-80 split. Incredible. But that's not to outshine another man who has recently made his way back into the rotation and performed very admirably tonight. Jetty Osman. Six three-pointers, including a banked-in three-pointer, a fuck-you terrible top-of-the-key three-pointer off of motion that really would get him yanked in any other scenario. Unprecedented at the time, but when you're up by as much as you are, you can afford to take those shots. And Osman went eight for 14 from the floor, added six three-pointers of his own. Listen to that sound. Do you hear it? That's the sound of JT Thor. Shitting in his diapies when he sees Darius Garland running down the lane unimpeded. This was a team that was outclassed from the jump. Bryce McGowan's does not look like an NBA player. Kai Jones does not look like a very good NBA player. And he certainly needs to learn a thing or two about how to set a screen. This was hands down Osmond's second best game of the season. Now we know the first best game. It was the magnificent, perfect three-point performance against the L.A. Clippers in that gigantic blowout, a game in which he went seven for seven from range, scored 29 points. But this was a close second, his second highest point total of the season as he scored 24 points tonight and his second highest three-point output of the season as he knocked down six of them, Levert notables. Now, yes, he scored more than this at various times this season. In fact, he scored 23 points three other times, plus the 41-point outlier against the Celtics. But tonight, he did those 22 points in just 27 minutes, his lowest total of minutes in any performance this season where he has eclipsed 20 points. In fact, it's one of only two 20-point performances that he achieved in less than 30 minutes, the other one being the Spurs game back in early December, a game that the Cavaliers lost. That brings Karras' stats as a starter up to a respectable 15 points, 5 assists, and 4 rebounds on 41-42 splits. That's right, a dead-eye shooter as a starter from 3-point range. There is a noticeable dip in efficiency when he goes to the bench nearly 10% from 3-point range, so starter Karras, say what you will about him as a backup. I share a lot of the frustrations, but I think a few things have been consistent. When called upon... To step into the starting lineup, we have got a very effective Karis LeVert. And that was not a luxury we had last season. We brought him in to try to solve the problem that was created by Rubio having that season-ending injury and, of course, Colin Sexton being out for the year. But this year, when we lose either Garland or Mitchell, I believe in what Karis LeVert can provide. And he is proving that. That brings us to Evan Mobley. Evan Mobley, who tonight hung 26 points on Nick Richards, Kai Jones, JT Thorpe, basically anyone they wanted to throw out at him, and he dominated. The little hook shots 
in the middle of the lane. The drop-offs from Karis LeVert were on point and most encouraging, made every single one of his free throws. That brings his stats since the All-Star break up to 19 points, 9 rebounds, and 3 assists on 13 attempts a game. And let's acknowledge something else that happened today. NBA.com finally elevated Evan Mobley to the the above-the-fold section of the defensive player ladder. Now, they still say that Brooke Lopez is the front-runner for Defensive Player of the Year. They have Jaron Jackson Jr., second, and they have Evan Mobley, third. I won't sit here and disparage Brooke Lopez. Quite frankly, I don't even have a strong argument that Evan Mobley should be the Defensive Player of the Year. I'm fine if they don't choose him. But I absolutely believe he has an exceptional case to be All-NBA first team on defense. And if he slides to second, okay, I'll stomach it like I stomach the rookie of the year, but no lower than that. As for Jaron Jackson Jr., Evan Mobley will not get more votes than him. That's because Jaron Jackson Jr. leads the league in block shots per game and defensive win shares and defensive rating. But there is one glaring thing which jumps out, and it should also jump out when I get around to this all-NBA discussion that I'm going to have in a moment regarding Bill Simmons. This will come up again. But there is a very relevant consideration here, and that's floor time. Evan Mobley has played nearly a thousand more minutes this season than Jaron Jackson Jr. At what point do you look at the games and the minutes played and say 2,300 minutes to 1,300 minutes is wild? Now, just for context, Steven Adams has been out of the lineup in Memphis since January 22nd. Brandon Clark was lost for the season, and even given that information, Jaron Jackson Jr. has played less at center than Evan Mobley. Evan Mobley has logged a full 60 minutes more than Jaron Jackson Jr. at the five spot this season. Jaron Jackson Jr. is incredible, but there is a strong case to be made for the fact that Evan Mobley's time on the court eclipses the difference in permanent production that a Jaron Jackson Jr. gives you on the defensive end. What's the saying? The best ability is availability. You can't block shots when you're on the bench with five fouls. Over three blocks a game is incredible, but you're third overall behind Lopez and Nick Claxton because you've played 17 and 14 less games respectively. Even Walker Kessler, a rookie, the man who replaced Rudy Gobert, is just eight blocks behind Jaron Jackson Jr. And we're hardly even talking about that man, except if it's framed in a way to disparage Rudy Gobert, and the Timberwolves for making that trade. The total production difference is staggering. 454 defensive rebounds to 250. 160 offensive rebounds to 80. That's not a defensive stat. That's just showing you double the production. I'm just using this to illustrate the fact that we talk on and on about the per-game production, but ignore the fact that the man is hardly on the floor. 1,388 minutes to 2,357 minutes. Evan Mobley is one game of minutes away from a 1,000 more minutes than Jaron Jackson Jr. I'm not even stumping for Mobley to beat Brooke Lopez. I'm perfectly content with Lopez winning. They're a top three defense. He's an incredible shot blocker, leads the league in total block shots. Great defender. But the thing with Brooke Lopez and Bam Adebayo, for that matter, is that both those guys have logged well over 2,000 minutes. They're in the same discussion. Jaron Jackson Jr. is that guy 
who goes two for two in his first game and gets to say that he batted a thousand on the season. We are comparing guys on a level playing field. If it comes down to two forwards for first team all NBA defense, and Jaron Jackson Jr. is just considered a shoe in, then Mobley is competing with OG Ananobi, Jaden McDaniels, maybe Giannis for that other spot. And do I still think that he should be? Yeah, but I could absolutely see a situation where OG Ananobi and Jaron Jackson Jr. end up getting first team and Mobley's kicked down to the second team with Jaden McDaniels at the forward spots. That is, I mean, it's fine. It's what it is. It's a ward. I shouldn't get all that heated about it. But quite frankly, if you're top three on this defensive ladder from NBA.com, how are you not one of the best five defenders in the NBA? I just think too many people have overlooked Evan. And here's a, a bit of a conspiracy theory. I don't even know if Evan would be getting this recognition on the defensive end if it weren't for what he's doing on the offensive end. Almost the entire season, it feels like he's been an afterthought. And now, all of a sudden, when he's starting to assert himself on the other end, well, look at that. People are saying, oh, and you know what else? He's pretty good on defense, too. But now I'm, I'm full on down this wormhole. I've abandoned this Cavalier game, which was incredible, by the way. But it was a blowout. It was against a crappy team. Certainly, the only other thing I wanted to mention here was Rubio, back-to-back, double-digit games, filled up the stat sheet tonight, 11-5-4, hit a couple of those elbow jumpers. It looked a little bit more comfortable. And Lamar Stevens, when he had the size advantage, it was nice to see him back a couple guys down towards the rim and make baskets over them. He put Oubre in the rim at one point. He missed the first shot, but he gathered his own rebound and flushed it. And they said on the broadcast, I guess I didn't realize this. I learned something tonight. The second leading scorer in Penn State basketball history was Lamar Stevens. Well, that begged the question, who was he behind? So I looked it up, Taylor Battle. The only guy in the top 10 of Penn State basketball that I recognized was Tim Frazier, who was number 10, who I think in the NBA was known mostly for dimes. And also, unless I did my research wrong, there hasn't been a single player from Penn State selected in the first round ever in NBA history. But let's leave this game behind us and let's address the other point of today's podcast, and it involves the ringers, Bill Simmons. In a season full of personal accolades. 71 points in the comeback overtime victory. A season filled with joy. MVP! There's a lot to celebrate about franchise centerpiece Donovan Mitchell. A remarkable, incredible play by Donovan Mitchell. But despite his most prolific season to date. I think a lot of people would have Mitchell as, as first team or second team, and I personally would not. There are still those in the media who would use their power, influence, and reach to cast aspersions on the rightful first team All-NBA selection. So first team All-NBA guard. Some people would throw Donovan Mitchell in this conversation. I would not. I would but not. these encroachments upon decency will not go unaddressed. What is wrong with a person like that? Today I go to war. Great ass! And you got your head all the way up it! Well, wait a minute. In a segment that can best be described as me arguing with sound bites from a man who will never, ever listen to this podcast. Fear the Fro brings you Bill Simmons is wrong. That's right. Bill Simmons is wrong. I will be arguing 
the points made by a man on this week's episode of the Bill Simmons podcast with Ryan Rossillo. Now, he has said a couple things in the last few weeks where he has disparaged Donovan Mitchell, diminished his candidacy for an all NBA first team selection. Now, it is more or less the common consensus amongst many NBA pundits, not just Bill Simmons, that the forward spots are essentially determined. Giannis and Jason Tatum, the center, toss-up, Jokic or Embiid. The first guard will likely be Luka Doncic, but after that, it is very debatable who should be the second. Now, I think there are a few candidates who have very strong cases, could be considered tier one choices, and then I think there's several others that Bill will go on to mention who aren't really even in the discussion, who he places above Donovan Mitchell. Let's just go to the audio, though, first. I'm playing these in chronological order. The first piece of audio I'm playing you is from multiple weeks ago, and it was the first time he brought Donovan Mitchell up in a negative light. I don't know. Mitchell to me is like, I think people have him 100% in pen as a first team or second team all NBA. I have him third team right now. I have Holiday over him because I think Holiday has been more impactful. And to me, it really matters that but the Bucks and Celtics are the two best teams. And I think one of those two teams should have uh, two All-NBA guys. You could argue Boston. Jalen was in there, but I think he's probably fallen out, got injured. I don't think statistically he hasn't been as good. But um, I would have Drew over Mitchell right now. What I'd like to do is just bullet point the obvious things. Donovan Mitchell, primary option on a very good team. Drew Holiday, Jalen Brown, secondary options, playing alongside first-team All-NBA players, Giannis and Jason Tatum, on also very good teams. I'll say that both of them are better defenders, but counting stats and efficiency all fall in Donovan Mitchell's favor. And the All-NBA is not a defensive award. It's primarily about being the best player on a team and putting up huge numbers. And Donovan Mitchell dwarfs the other two in that capacity. But here for yourself what Bill's rationale was. I, I think that team has really struggled in the last five minutes of games. There's all these advanced stats about what their record should be versus what it is. And I think part of the problem is I don't think he's been that great for them in crunch time since the first couple of weeks. So the whole premise of his argument is built around the idea that Donovan Mitchell is a worse clutch performer than Jalen Brown and Drew Holiday. And this clutch performance thing, he stuck with it into this second run of slandering Donovan Mitchell. So rather than address it now, I'm just going to save it. But what I want you to notice between the first podcast where he knocked Donovan Mitchell and the second is that the two guys he said should displace Donovan Mitchell, Drew Holiday and Jalen Brown, they magically disappeared. Drew Holiday is no longer a viable candidate despite the fact their team has won 21 of the last 23 games. They don't even appear on his list. Just Two weeks later. Now, is that an acknowledgement that he was wrong two weeks ago? Or have things changed so much that four or five guys have now let past Donovan in a couple of weeks, whereas Drew and Jalen have now fallen below him? I don't know. But here is the audio of the Bill Simmons podcast with Ryan Rossillo. So first team All-NBA guard, which seems like at this point we should at least have an idea who the favorite is. I could give you John Morant. I could give you Dame Lillard with a losing record. I could give you Darren Fox. I could give you James Harden. I could give you Shea Gilgis Alexander with a losing record. Some people would throw Donovan Mitchell in this conversation. I would not. So the only thing consistent there 
is that last statement. He wouldn't put Donovan Mitchell in the conversation. Everyone else who's entered the conversation was not even in it just two weeks ago. But let's look at this on face value because I don't disagree with everything Bill says. Some of those candidates, I absolutely would have no issue if they get first team all NBA before Donovan Mitchell. My preference would be, and a guy who I think has a very strong case is Donovan Mitchell. But if you're willing to overlook team success, I absolutely think just by numbers, just by numbers, you could make the case that Damian Lillard or Shea Gilgis-Alexander deserve the first team nod over Donovan Mitchell. If you're willing to forego team success, then fine. No problem with that case. As it relates to De'Aaron Fox, first scoring option on an incredible team, and he legitimately does have better clutch numbers than Donovan Mitchell, okay, I'm willing to entertain that too. But what happened to Drew Holiday and Jalen Brown? This idea that Harden should be? No, sorry. He's not in the conversation. He falls into the same category as Jalen and Drew. Great secondary stars playing along transcendent players. Guys whose numbers don't dwarf Donovan Mitchell and guys who aren't the primary options on their teams. I'm sorry. Their case is not better than Donovan Mitchell. Now, I will hear the argument for De'Aaron Fox because he is playing on a Sacramento team, playing unbelievably. He has played more games by one game than Donovan Mitchell. And his numbers, while he doesn't score as much, and while he can't shoot as well from outside, he is still having an incredible season in the sense that he is the number one player in the NBA in terms of clutch scoring. He is a huge fourth quarter scorer, even more points in the fourth quarter than Donovan Mitchell, who scores the majority of his points in the fourth quarter. So I will entertain three men for this conversation. Damian Lillard, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, and De'Aaron Fox. Any one of those guys who want to leap over him, fine. John Morant, too. I could see it. However, I don't know. He's played 53 games. He's got this going on. Is he really going to get more votes than Donovan Mitchell, who has a very similar resume? Donovan Mitchell scores a little bit more. He's more efficient. He's considerably more efficient from three-point land. And both of their teams are good, but the, the Cleveland Cavaliers are better as we currently sit. So, I could hear Damian Lillard, his numbers, he's having statistically the best season he's had. And that's incredible considering his age. But to be doing 32 points, to be shooting the splits he's shooting, his 2023 is otherworldly. I don't think you can just dismiss him. Shea Gilgis-Alexander, same basic case. Great stats. His team is underwhelming. This idea, though, that Donovan Mitchell is somehow not a clutch performer, let's look at that. And before I do that, Let me just play this point that Bill makes where he reinforces yet again Donovan Mitchell is bad in the clutch but doesn't provide the data that he says he has. Who would you take? I'm going to actually put Mitchell down right now. First team? Yeah. Wow, I have a lot of stats to throw at you. Okay, guys, get ready because he's got a lot of stats to throw at us. By the way, good on Rosillo for just immediately smacking down his take. (sighs) I mean, his clutch stats are bad. And and I think he shot them out of games. And I actually think their record should be better than it is. Um, I think he's been pretty hit or miss. Now, I spent a ton of time on a previous podcast trying to get to the bottom of what clutch stats Bill Simmons is looking at. But I here's what I will say. Last month, NBA.com has a clutch player ladder ranking. Donovan Mitchell was fourth. This month, Donovan Mitchell is eighth. 
eighth in the entire NBA. That's how they rank him. In terms of points in the clutch, Donovan Mitchell, when ranked by total clutch points, is seventh in the NBA. By clutch points per game, Donovan Mitchell is 13th in the NBA. And that's above several of the guys who have come up in this conversation. That's above Lillard. That's above Jalen Brown. That's above Drew Holiday, Curry, Morant, Harden. That's above Giannis and Tatum. The only argument that makes any sense, if I'm trying to put myself inside Bill Simmons' mind, has to be focused on his shooting percentages in the clutch because Donovan Mitchell is shooting 40-30 splits. However, Damian Lillard is shooting 38-29 splits. Shea Gilgis-Alexander is shooting 40-33 splits. Not an appreciable difference. Now, De'Aaron Fox, who I alluded to before, he is otherworldly, 54%, 29% from three in the clutch. That's the other thing. Donovan Mitchell has been in those situations more than most other people around him. 34 games, he's been in clutch situations, and he's gone 19 and 15 in those games. So the idea that the Cavaliers have been bad in them, it's not supported. Damian Lillard, losing record. Shea Gilgis-Alexander, huge losing record. De'Aaron Fox, 20 and 13 versus 19 and 15. So the actual win-loss results aren't really supported by it. The only thing that I would call a negative stat for Donovan Mitchell in the clutch is that his field goal percentages aren't as high as they are the rest of the game. But the Cavaliers are the single best team in net rating in the fourth quarter. They're 7-0 and in overtime. Is overtime not clutch? He's definitely... I mean, I don't even need to look at Donovan Mitchell's stats to know he's not shooting them out of those games because they've won them all. He has the seventh most clutch points in the NBA. That's above Joel Embiid. That's above Shea Gilgis-Alexander. That's above LeBron James. That's above a ton of people. The only guys who have scored more points in the clutch than Donovan Mitchell this season are De'Aaron Fox, Jimmy Butler, Jalen Brunson, DeMar DeRozan, Luka Doncic, and Karis LeVert foul target, Jordan Clarkson. That's it. Donovan Mitchell has scored more points in the clutch than anybody else. Not to mention, he has a plus-minus of 28. So this idea that he shot them out of games in the clutch, I don't know how that really plays out. I just don't see it. I hope in his future podcast, he explains exactly in what capacity he feels Donovan Mitchell has failed the Cavs in the clutch. Because I don't wholly disagree with this idea that they've lost some winnable games. But still, they're the fifth most successful team in the NBA with the youngest core amongst those teams. The Bucks, the Celtics, the 76ers, the Nuggets. Those are veteran teams with continuity. What standard are you holding Donovan Mitchell to? So, Did you not expect any growing pains being put into a new roster? That's what I had to say. And I, Bill Simmons, I love the podcast. I clearly listen. Ryan Rossillo is amazing. One of my favorite guys to do it. His monologues, the fact, I mean, as a guy who's doing so many of these podcasts by myself, to hear a man who can do that and who can keep my attention the way he does, I don't know if there's a better guy out there, quite frankly. But I need to hear more. I need to hear these stats that Bill Simmons is going to shock everyone with about clutch performance. And explain to me what is so damning about what Donovan Mitchell has done. Because I've watched all the games. I I don't think I'm that much of a homer. I'm a homer. Don't get me wrong. But I just said to you, I'd be fine with Lillard, 
Shea Gilgis Alexander, with De'Aaron Fox, with any of those guys beating Donovan Mitchell. And even John Moran, I could understand. But Curry, who hasn't played enough games, Harden, Drew Holiday, Jalen Brown, no. Those guys aren't in the conversation. So let's wrap this thing up. I feel like I've addressed this as fairly as I could without just taking pot shots at a man who I'm not actually speaking to. So that is that segment. But we'll have more podcasts, including... Hopefully one after this massive game. If we get the doors kicked in, I'm not making any promises. But there will be more Fear the Fro episodes. And again, I want to thank everybody who has listened to this podcast, who has subscribed to it, who has rated, who has left a review. And I saw yet another Reddit thread from guys who support the podcast and such kind sentiments on there. I want to thank all you guys. It's it's huge to me to know that anybody enjoys it. And just to see the amount of people who say kind things I am beyond grateful because this is a labor of love. I spend most of my day making these stupid production pieces, which you hear me put into this podcast, but I'm doing it for other people. So to have anyone like it when I'm the one who gets to steer the creative direction of it, it's meaningful to me. It makes me think that all these years that I've been pushing a boulder up a hill for other people to get credit for, that maybe I can find my own path here with people who are like-minded, and who enjoy the Cavaliers as much as I do. So, thank you once again from me, Bob Schmidt, voice of Fox Sports Radio. This has been the Fear the Fro podcast. Let's go and beat those Sixers. This has been Fear the Fro. If you like the show, subscribe and rate wherever you listen. Our guy, Bob Schmidt, always gets a reaction out of it. Join us next time for more Cavs and NBA coverage.